You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'll be taking a look at issue number 65 of The Nom, which features a guest stint on the art chores by artist Russ Heath, and it covers June of 71. I'll be jumping back and covering the rest of 1970 next episode. And eventually, this will all get us into a pretty regular progression through the rest of the war, mixed in with a few extra pieces of popular culture along the way. Speaking of popular culture, our song this time around is Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, which was the lead single off of their 1971 album Sticky Fingers, and it hit number one in June of 1971. The song, like a number of Stones hits from the era, has its fair share of backstory, and I'm just going to read a snippet from their Wikipedia page. Originally recorded over a three-day period at Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama from the 2nd to the 4th of December of 1969, the song was not released until over a year later due to legal wranglings with the band's former label, though at the request of guitarist Mick Taylor, they debuted the number live during the infamous concert at Altamont on the 6th of December of 1969. The song was written by Jagger with Marsha Hunt in mind, Hunt was Jacker's secret girlfriend and the mother of his first child, Karis. It is also claimed that it was written with Claudia Lanier in mind. Lanier made this claim on BBC's Radio 4 on the 25th of February 2014, saying that it was written with her in mind because at the time when it was written, Mick Jagger used to hang around with her. Jagger says... The lyric was all to do with the dual combination of drugs and girls. The song was a very instant thing, a definite high point. Turning now to the comic... Our issue is titled The Gratitude of His People and was written by Chuck Dixon with art by Russ Heath. Letters in Color were by Theo Felix. Don Daly was your editor. Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. The book was dated February of 1992 and was released on December 30th, 1991, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. And one other important note, the price of the comic has gone from $1.50 to $1.75. This is where it would stay for the next 20 issues until it's canceled with number 84. The cover is by Russ Heath. It shows a man whose face is half a skull with a rifle, and it looks like a couple of American soldiers are in his sights. The caption says, It takes one to kill one. It's really creepy. It nicely reflects the creepiness of the work inside. Heath is not just a well-known war comics artist, he's a Hall of Famer, up there with the likes of Joe Kubert. In fact, Heath's work from All American Men of War No. 89 was used by Roy Lichtenstein in his piece Blam and Barada. We open with shots, a bunker, and a voiceover that tells us that someone has stories about the VC employing a superstar sniper whom they refer to as the Ghost, a guy who only has half a face and lives in a hooch built from the helmets of the people he's killed. Our splash page shows this guy, who is the same guy we see on the cover, and we then see that the people talking about the ghost are sitting in the bed of a truck. One of them says that they're sending in a hotshot marine sniper to get him, and another asks if this is true. 
Iceman, who is sitting in between them, says that people tell stories like this all the time, and references an AWOL sniper they call the Creep, which I believe is actually a reference to next issue. Anyway, one of the guys insists that it's true and talks about how the ghost took out a bunch of guys on Firebase Tammy and nobody can figure out how to beat him. Well, the guy they brought in to beat him is sitting next to Ice, and his name is Speed. They arrive at Firebase Tammy and are briefed by the captain, who reiterates that what some of the grunts on the base have already said, the place has become a shooting gallery. Plus, the captain is hamstrung because he's not allowed to send patrols out to find the guy. Speed and Ice check into their hooch, and they wake up early the next morning. Speed starts to get himself ready, saying that the job isn't personal, it's definitely business, when ARV and Major Flock, who is the base commandant, comes in and tells them that the base has a pool going, and the odds are 6-1 to one in favor of the ghost. Speed gets offended, and Ice decides to put $50 on his friend to succeed. This annoys Speed, but Iceman says, look at it this way, we live and the Major pays us to take number one R&R Taiwan in Taiwan. They head out in the rain and eventually make it to their position. Speed wants one shot before Ice radios in the position, which is not what they're supposed to do. But before he can take his shot, one of the ARV and soldiers in the area gets tagged and Ice has to radio in an airstrike. They're pretty sure after the airstrike's over, they've gotten him, even though Speed knows he could have gotten him without help. And they head back to Firebase Tammy. The Major greets them and is happy to hear that they got the ghost. That is, until one of his men is shot and killed. Everyone runs for cover. Back in the briefing room, they discuss where the ghost may be hiding in tunnels and wonder how to draw him out. The Major says he won't have his men used as lures anymore, and Ice antagonizes the Major, reminding him of the betting he's doing and how he's basically been wagering on their lives. Before dawn the next morning, Speed and Ice slip out into the rain and head again to where they last saw him. They keep searching through the jungle, this time taking their time, sleeping in shifts, and do their best to be patient. Then, they spot what they think is a flash of, of a sight in the brush, and Speed sits himself up, takes aim, and he fires. The ghost fires back and hits Ice in the mouth. He's bleeding, but he's going to live, and only grazed him. It seems that the ghost had set up a decoy in a tree as a way to get his enemies to give up their position. Speed then hands out on his own. And the narration boxes say, Shot came from uphill. He measures his pace in feet per hour. A track of a tire, sandal, and a depression near it. He knows this is where he knelt to shoot ice. And then there's a, there's a gunshot. The ghost is real close now. Have to take him over open sights. Not a sound. The jungle's a noisy place, but it hushes now. All night he lies. Bugs crawl on him and his stirrup burns for water, but speed doesn't move. He just watches the ridgeline. And a ghost rises from the dark woods to haul his butt off the battlefield. Not more than 50 yards. Can't miss. He shoots and he fires. Speed comes upon the guy, who's lying dead with his rifle next to him. The ghost. Little guy with an ancient French rifle, relic of a rifle. Little guy with a magic eye. Speed would have liked to go hunting with him sometime in the upper in Potter country. Ice. He goes back to see Ice, and Ice says, you get him? Speed says, got him. How you feeling? Shoot me through the tree. Hersh like a muffer. And they bandage Ice's uh, mouth up, and he says, Major's money sure will make it hurt less. So you won. You're the fast gun. I guess, yeah, Speed says. But he was good, one guy alone with a rifle keeping all them Marvins home in their bunkers. 
One guy worth 200 of them. Never thought about it till now. Little man's gonna win this war. You know, when I first began reading this story, I was a little skeptical because I thought I was going to be repeat of the first Punisher in the Nam story, where Frank was brought in to take out a really good VC sniper and eventually outwitted and killed him, forging the legend of the Punisher from the actions he took and the bodies he left behind. But it was refreshing to see that this wasn't entirely like that. First of all, there were no superheroics, at least as superheroic as you can get in the Nam. And second, the conclusion of this is much smaller than that. At the end of the Punisher story, you've got smoke and the Punisher's skull in the sense that Frank Castle is a larger-than-life soldier. Here, Speed is walking away from the ghost's body with a bandaged ice, and while he doesn't regret killing the ghost, he seems to express that it's kind of a shame that the two of them had to be on opposite sides of a war because he honestly respected his opponent. And his line, Little Man's Gonna Win This War, is a great summary of what we've read so far in this comic, because if you think about it, we haven't been reading stories about a Patton-esque war hero. We've been reading the stories of average soldiers on both sides, and the images that you get from the end of the war in 1975 are very similar. The taking of Saigon, at least from my mind when I hear it, isn't the liberation of Paris during World War II. It's more of a people's army overrunning the city. It's less ceremonial, and it's more chaotic much like the war in itself, which is typified by soldiers hiding in foxholes and using caves as well as snipers and other guerrilla tactics. The interplay between all the various characters throughout the issue is excellent, by the way, from the way that the captain expresses his frustration about not being able to handle the situation the way he wants to, to Major Folk, who is running a betting pool. In fact, I love when they head out on their first mission, and the captain says, Good luck, men. We're pulling for you. And Speed says, I wonder who the captain's got money on. Ice and Speed are great characters to have here and have proven to be great characters because we were pretty much familiar with them. And they have this journeyman type of role at this point, so we can see them in various places doing a host of things from special ops to LLRP to this sniper work. I know that at some point down the line, Ed Marks will return, and I believe he's going to be working for Stars and Stripes, or he'll be a journalist in some regard. I'm looking forward to that, because it's been keeping the title from getting stale, which is what was starting to happen in the latter part of Doug Murray's run. Not stale, per se, but, well, it me it didn't get completely stale, it just meandered a little. Because overall, Chuck Dixon continues to show how great he is at writing action and building tension throughout a story. And this story, especially a story that's really simple in its plot, you have an enemy you're after, he eludes you, you think you've got him, we see that you haven't, and then it's time to really dig in and get him. Nothing fancy, nothing elaborate, and like I said, a quieter ending than you might get from an action flick of this time. And Russ Heath's art is just gorgeous. He has the characters down just as well as Wayne Van Zant did, and also shows what action there is to there has to be in a vivid way that's not over the top or 290s. In fact, there's only one splash page in this entire issue, and it's page two, which is the only full shot we ever get of the ghost, because the next time we actually see him, he's dead and Speed is standing over his body. That's really all you need, right? The ghost is called the ghost for a reason, and you don't need a huge amount of explanation as to his backstory or to see him interact with anyone, especially since he seems to be more of a story that the soldiers are telling one another than anything, even if he is a real threat. It's nothing against Wayne Van Zant, by the way, but it's a little disappointing that this is the only issue of the book that Russ Heath ever did. I would have really liked to see what he could have done with a multi-issue story arc, or at least a year or so on the title. But that's issue it for issue number 65. I'll be back in a moment with historical context and ads. 
30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Alright, so I'm going to take a look at what was going on in 1971. My two primary sources, as usual, are Wikipedia as well as the History Place. So, sometime in 1970, June of 71, during a college commencement speech, Senator Mike Mansfield labels the Vietnam War a tragic mistake. Uh, and then we have some specific things on specific dates. Uh, Vietnam veterans for a just peace on June 1st claim that they claim to represent the majority of the United States veterans in Southeast, who served in Southeast Asia, they speak against war protests. And then on June 10th, the U.S. will end its trade embargo of China. Uh, the United States-Chinese relationship will uh, start to, to cool, will start to um, warm up over the course of the next year or two. Uh, this has a little bit of factor into the war as Nixon will start to try to use their, their burgeoning relationship with China as a way to hopefully get some of the peace talks going or some other negotiations going to varying degrees of success. In June of 13th, 1971, the New York Times begins publication of the Pentagon Papers. This is a secret Defense Department archive of the paperwork involved in the decisions made by previous White House administrations concerning Vietnam. This infuriates Richard Nixon, and uh, on June 15th, he will attempt to stop further publication through legal action against the New York Times in the United States Supreme Court. On June 18th, the Washington Post will begin its publication of the Pentagon Papers, and then the Times and the Post will, not, will then become involved in that legal wrangling, uh, which will wind up before the Supreme Court. This will move on to June 28th, where Daniel Ellsberg, who is the leak in the Pentagon Papers case, will surrender to the police. On June 29th, Senator Mike Gravel attempted to re read the Pentagon Papers in the, into the congressional record. A lack of a quorum prevented the Senate from convening. As chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Public Buildings and Grounds, Gravel convened a meeting of the subcommittee, and he spent an hour reading part of the Pentagon Papers into the record. And then finally, on June 30th, the United States Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three in favor of the New York Times and the Washington Post publication of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, this was a huge First Amendment thing, uh, one of the type of things you study in, in kind of your history of media studies or history of journalism class. 
uh, from around this time, and uh, Nixon's relationship with the press uh, would not exactly be smooth after this either, especially as we get into 72 and 73, and Woodward and Bernstein begin investigating the Watergate uh, break-in. Non-Pentagon-related things, non-Pentagon papers-related things, on June 16th, Australia's experimental military unit is withdrawn from Vietnam. On June 22nd, a non-binding resolution passed in the U.S. Senate urged the removal of all American troops from Vietnam by the end of the year. Uh, That would not completely happen. And then uh, sometime in June 1971, George Jackson will replace William Corby as the head of Chords. A pop culture note, just a little bit of of fun here. The uh, first Hard Rock Cafe opened in London, England on June 14th. Uh, that does it for historical context. There are no letter column. There's no letter column in this issue. So let's just take a quick look at uh, this issue's ads. Nightshade on the inside cover and Ultra Games do some moonlighting as a crime fighter. Night falls in a black shroud over Metro City and the ancient Egyptian villi- villain Suket goes to work. And so do you, for you are the mysterious unknown hero who lurks in the corners, melts in the shadows, and rules the darkness. You are Nightshade for the NES. Infiltrate 100 of the city's most seedy recesses while chasing thieves, thugs, and muggers you must squeeze for clues or destroy. Question dangerous characters and hunt for hidden objects like force gloves and energy tomes, all essential for survival as you fend off the hired assassins hot on your trail. Follow Sutek's trail of treachery too closely and you'll be figuring out how to escape the jackal pit, the human printing press, the closing wall of spikes and other traps. Use your powers of intellect and keep your eyes open, your mind alert, or you'll no longer be able to control the night. You'll be consumed by it. Interesting concept for a game. Not something I ever remember actually seeing or ever playing. Um, I think by the time we hit this point in 1991, I'm, um, I think I'm, I'm about to start high school. I think I'm still playing Nintendo, but I don't think I'm, I'm getting many, many games at this point. The last Nintendo game I remember playing, or like brand new Nintendo game I remember playing, was Dragon Warrior Two. And the last, or Mega Man 4, like one of those. And the last one I ever wanted but never got was Dragon Warrior 3. So we really are kind of toward the end of everything here with at least my my Nintendoing. There is an ad for the Game Boy, a Beetlejuice Game Boy, and there's a picture of the animated version because there was an animated Beetlejuice, I believe it was a Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, he's in the cover of that, and then they recommend also check out The Ghost with the Most from your NES, too, and they show uh, the movie poster cover. Uh, Columbia House is offering us eight compact discs or cassettes for the price of a half. It's half at just the regular club price. We have everything from Skid Row's Slave to the Grind, Diamond Rio, Vanilla Ice is Extremely Live, yeah. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's Home Base, the Boys in the Hood soundtrack, Don Henley's The End of the Innocents, Boys to Men's Cooley High Harmony, Van Halen's For Unlawful Car- Carnal Knowledge, Natalie Cole's Unforgettable, uh... Paul Simon's The Rhythm of the Saints, the soundtrack to The Doors, The Best of Stevie Nicks, Heavy D and the Boys' Peaceful Journey, Spellbound by Paul Abdul, Extremes Pornography, Jesus Jones' Doubt. There we are, early 90s. The Madonna's Immaculate Collection. 
Uh, but you can also get some classic stuff like uh, Led Zeppelin 4 or The Eagles' Greatest Hits or Brian Adams' Reckless. So start with four CDs or cassettes for one cent now. And you can. this is where the, one of those Columbia House ads... Oh, I'm sorry. It's BMG, not Columbia House. Same difference, right? Where you tape the penny to the to the order form and you cut out the order form ruining your comic. Although by this time I probably would have gone to the uh, library uh, and made a photocopy before sending in an ooh, entertainment this month. X-Men card series one. I think there's a lot. I think we might have seen this one before. We've got Cage number one. Uh, Luke Cage is back, bigger, stronger, and badder than ever. The first issue includes a gripping double cover. Uh, which you can get for one fifty and five or more each at a dollar twenty-five. The Punisher War Zone die-cut bullet cover, Batman Gotham Knights, an all-new four-issue miniseries featuring art by Ant- Anton First, Batman vs. Two-Face in, with with art by Matt Wagner, which I think was called Faces in Legends of the Dark Knight, Marvel Comics one hundred. Oh, I think this is Marvel Comics presents one hundred with Wolverine. It's a Ghost Rider Wolverine, the full-length. 32-page story, and the big hot thing was X-Men card series number one. I had a lot of these. Following the success of the Marvel Universe card series one and two, Marvel and and Impel present a new 100-card X-Men series featuring exclusive Jim Lee art. In addition to the 100 all-new mutant cards, there will be also five hologram cards, and Jim Lee will be signing 1,000 randomly inserted cards. The X-Men cards will be blisteringly hot. Don't miss out. Recommended. One pack for a dollar. Ten packs for $7.95. A box for $19.95. I, I had quite a bit of these. Classic Marvel tees. Um, like I said, I have this Wolverine and Psylocke one. It's a Jim Lee uh, action shot. A hodgepodge ad saying uh, we have a your ad here thing. You can go to high school in your spare time. You can right into the E. Phelps company to get a draw super characters book or two. Great Eastern Conventions is going to New York, Chicago, London, uh, Cincinnati, Atlanta, at the Castlegate Hotel and Conference Center off I-75 and Howell Mill Road. Wayne, New Jersey, which I always remember because it's my dad's first name, and there was, I remember there was like a Toys R Us opening there one year. Washington, D.C. at the, ooh, the Crystal Gateway Marriott, 1700 Jefferson Davis Highway in Crystal City, Virginia. I used to live like literally right next to that. There's an apartment building called Crystal Square Apartments next to the Crystal Gateway Marriott. I lived in that apartment. It is literally on the other side of Jefferson Davis Highway. That's uh, pretty cool. Louisville, Kentucky, Detroit, Syracuse, etc. At the Holiday Inn. Exit 18 off Route 81. Mile High Comics is having a new comic book 50% off if you order from the nice subscription service. Uh, we have some licensed art there. Bullpen bulletins. It's Christmas, so Stan writes in and saying he was reading some old soapboxes the other day, and he came across a column from 1980 that might be appropriate. It's this whole, you know, kids across the world, they're the same. Peace and love and brotherhood in the, in the Christmas, you know, don't forget that we're all human, we're all on this planet, etc., etc. And that sounds really cynical and dismissive, and I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to, you know, move things along here. Our cool the meter 
cool Dr. Seuss Guns N' Roses Power Pack Holiday Special Mystery Science Theater 3000 Spy Magazine Northern Exposure Utter Lack of Pretentiousness Kim the Alley Cat Alley Characters with No First Names The Olympic Basketball Team Pregnant Sitcom Actresses and all the way down to Uncool, Herman's Head. Uh, no, I don't think so. Herman's Head was awesome. Iambic Pentameter, Marvel and Maples, Parodies of Christmas Carol, People Who Don't Like Coolometers. Hardy, har, har. Uh, in the bullpen, they've they've hired Jack, Joey Cavallari and Minnie Newell. Uh, Minnie will be with Bob Budiansky. Joey's going to be the editor of Moonlight. Executive editor promotions, you've got Mark Grunewald, Carl Potts, and Bob Budiansky. And uh, Tom DeFalco is still your editor-in-chief. There's a WAM, the official Marvel fan club. WAM stands for Wild Agents of Marvel. It's not in any way affiliated with pop singer George Michael. Uh, Club membership includes a wreath full of goodies as well as a quarterly newsletter. It's even better than a Perry Cuomo holiday special. I doubt that. And then um, Entertainment Weekly had done a write-up of X-Men number one, chock full with photos of Jim Lee, John Byrne, Chris Claremont. And there's a chestnut roasting write-up that Todd McFarlane received in People magazine for his work on the Spider-Man book. It occurs to us that the media blessed us comics biz with late with the with the gift of coverage. There's, uh, there's all sorts of Christmas gift-giving puns and Rudolph nicknames and all that sort of stuff. And then they talk about how they had to raise the price of their standard newsstand comics to $1.25. They said that the entertainment value, though, has increased late by 100%. And... And there you go, which explains the increase in price of, of this comic that I'm holding here. Uh, we have the One Million Comics presents the Undisputed Leader in Marvel back issues. And you can, this in really, 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 really fine print, you can see what they're, what they're offering. And then you can write in for a catalog. Uh, there's a house ad for Cage, two-fisted, pulse-pounding action from the world's best hero for hire. He's, dr- it, it's, he kind of looks like the Power Man, the poses very, very Power Man looking, but he's in um, a more era-appropriate costume. It looks like he's ripping up his old costume. It's on sale monthly starting in February. They have this sort of label on it called, this is the Big Guns, so he's like in a sight, and the Cage logo is in the upper right corner. And the Cage logo, there was this point in the early 90s where all of the logos or or not all of them but a bunch of the logos for the titles all have the same sort of style cable cage and excalibur for instance all have this sort of blocky um italicized thing it's uh and cage and cable like since they they have very similar you know names looked exactly the same so uh i can't I, i can't think that wasn't an accident uh, Punisher stuff that's coming around you've got Blood on the Moors a hardcover graphic novel Dirty Drug Dealing in Scotland an eye for an eye a trade paperback about how how it all began Bloodlines a bookshelf Murder in the Tropics it's too close to home and Punisher's the hard-hitting action and it's hard-hitting best coming this December you've got 1991 prices in 1992 the subscription ad three titles for only 30 bucks that's 12 issues each we are back to the number three of a series in the three musketeers ads which i've done before and on the back cover we have the game genie which would hack your nintendo uh game with codes with cheat codes which was a pretty cool idea and i remember we never bought it somebody left theirs at our place for a while so i don't know how that happened 
Anyway, that'll do it for me. That'll do it for the nom number 65 and for this episode. Next time around, I'll be back with issue 66 of the nom. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.